Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to IGN Unfiltered, our monthly long-form interview show where uh, it is my goal to find the most interesting people and the, the things they've done in the video game industry and talk to them about it because, turns out, some of the most interesting stories in the video game world aren't the games themselves, but, in my opinion, the people behind them. This is one such man. His name is Greg Canessa. You may remember that name. You may ring a bell. You've been at uh, PopCap, you've been at Blizzard, you've been at Activision, but you mostly came to my attention right. in your days at Microsoft. You were in the, there in the beginning of the Xbox days, mm-hmm. and you are, my friend, the creator, the primary creator with your team mm-hmm. of Xbox Live Arcade. Yeah. That, which remains one of my favorite things about the Xbox ecosystem of all time. Thank you. So, but you were telling me before we got started, and so I just want to start right here. Mm-hmm. You were telling me that Xbox Live Arcade almost didn't get off the ground. Yeah, that's right. It was, uh, it was not part of the plan for Xbox or Xbox 360 at all. Um, and that's kind of one of the lesser-known facts uh, in, in the console space nowadays. Um, while you know, we all think about it as the game service that we've... We've, we've, you know, we've kind of come to know and love over the last, you know, ten years yeah. or so. Uh, it, it, it was, it was uh, a, a project that came in very late in the uh, planning cycle for Xbox 360, the very end of OG Xbox, and it was, uh, it wasn't really supposed to happen, and it almost didn't happen. So, okay, well, that, easy <laughs> next question. Yeah, How, what, what happens behind the scenes where it almost doesn't happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, really, Xbox Live Arcade was a was a was a, a an idea that we had. We came up with and uh, wrote the business plan in late two thousand three. Uh, really, there were a few different phenomena that were going on at the time. If you were to kind of rewind mentally back to two thousand three, there was Xbox there, Live was launching. There was at that time. Uh, that's right. Xbox Live launched in two thousand two. You know, first ever real sort of console downloadable or real real game service, so to speak. Yeah, not really downloadable to, per se, but you know, voice chat and multiplayer gaming and so forth, we'd launch and we had seen some really early success there, which was great. Um, there were a lot of other things going on in the industry at the same time that really created kind of this perfect storm of opportunity that inspired the creation of Xbox Live Arcade. You had um, the indie game movement just starting to happen on the PC. You had iTunes and the iPod uh, come about, and for the first time, sort of digital distribution of content was right. becoming legit for people. Um, you had retro gaming starting to flourish and come back, both with the kind of compilation packs sure. from Midway and Namco yep. Museum, that I type of stuff. Those. You remember those? And then MAME was happening on the PC at the same time. Um, and then you had this casual gaming thing with companies like PopCap and GameHouse and others, you know, on these PC web portals and these downloadable games, try before you buy $20 uh, game experiences like Bejeweled and Zuma and those types of things were happening. And they all kind of conspired into this... This, this idea behind, um, wow, what if we opened up the console for the first time ever, leveraged this pipeline that we created, this, this, this bandwidth, you know, this, this, this pipe that we'd created sure. around Xbox Live, where we had broadband in the box to deliver full game content um, through Xbox Live. 
And so uh, sat down and wrote a business plan for it. Um, it was really a two-phase business plan. Okay. The phase one was sort of OG Xbox. Right, because it, it yeah. actually launched with Ms. Pac-Man as a That's right. $15 That's right. thing. It was like... What they're yeah. tr- they're trying to sell me Ms. Pac-Man for fifteen dollars? I don't I don't understand this. Yeah, we, that was um, that was really the experiment. I mean, that was really <laughs> the precursor to the thing we really wanted to do, which yeah. was the Xbox 360 version. Um, the OG Xbox uh, version of XBLA is what we affectionately refer to as uh, the version no one knew about. Um, was uh, because of the limitations of OG Xbox at the time. We called it Xbox One at the time, ironically. Right. As you know. Had to, uh, had to wreck on that one. Had to, exactly. <laughs> uh, that, that was a great console. And it, while it was designed with that broadband port you know, for, for Xbox Live, when we launched in 2002, we didn't really anticipate that we'd, we would be doing a lot of things in the dashboard. If you recall, there was kind of that green sort of screen. Oh, yeah. There wasn't a whole lot. There was sort of a profile and setup. There were some very simple things for voice chat, but it wasn't really designed to be software upgradable, Mm -hmm. so we couldn't really integrate something like an Xbox Live Arcade into the dashboard. Okay. So what we had to do is we had to roll XBLA, and the first incarnation of it, on a disc. And ironically, so, ironically, and <laughs> boy, I'll tell you, uh, the challenge of getting people to actually get that disc in, in, in their hands was really, really tough for us. Right? We were polybagging it into magazines. We were giving it away at you know trade shows. We were you know um, you know bundling it in with the console. But you know we were trying like hell to try and get this uh, get this disc into people's hands. One of the things we did was we bundled with Ms. Pac-Man. So that was the kind of pack-in game, yeah. if you will, as an incentive for people to try it out. But you had to have the disc in the tray, close it, to pull up the Xbox Live Arcade dash, if you will, and select the games. But even if you downloaded something onto your hard drive, you had to go root around and find that disc and stick it in to play the games that you had on your hard drive. So it was a little wonky. Um, but uh, nonetheless, we did get a small crop of consumers in there, a small group of gamers in there, yeah. and we, you know, we shipped uh, about 20 games in there. Uh, Namco was our early partner, of course, mm-hmm. not only Ms. Pac-Man, but we shipped Pole Position and Galaga. Um, PopCap was an early partner, GameHouse. There were a number of different sort of indie games that we shipped, and that was what we saw with, albeit a small audience, was incredible. So how does it almost not happen when it? So so we um, we 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 had that early uh, that that early version. It, it launched, by the way, uh, November 9th, two thousand four. You recall what that? I mean, date is. I, I of course remember it, but I don't remember it launching the same day. Yeah, as Halo you probably 2 don't. <laughs> it was the same day as Halo Two, and it was a little more notable. I guess I was uh, maybe distracted by yeah, Halo probably, Two. Yeah, probably, probably. Um, but uh, we launched it then. We we saw that you know that download to purchase conversion rate because you know every game had a demo. That was a key key right. principle of it, um, and we saw that conversion rate at eight and a half times that of. Uh, what we were seeing on the PC uh, at the time, wow. which was phenomenal. So that was an early sort of, the experiment was a success. We knew we were on to something. Um, so what happened was, um, when I wrote the initial, just to back up a little bit, yeah. when I wrote the initial business plan for XBLA, I went around and pitched it to a lot of different executives that were at Microsoft at the time. And remember, this was an idea that came out of left field. No one had planned on it. wasn't part of the Xbox One plan. wasn't part of the 360 plan, which was called Xenon at the time. So caveat, when he says... 
Xbox One for the rest of the show. He's talking about the original oh, OG Xbox. <laughs> right. Sorry. OG Xbox. Um, the, the OG Xbox, you know, again, not, not part of that plan, not part of the 360 plan, which at the time was codenamed Xenon. Right. And so the team was already hard at work on that, but we were still working on, um, on, on X, OG Xbox as well. So wrote the plan, pitched it to a bunch of different executives. It was like, thanks, but no thanks. It was just me, like, random guy. Hey, you know, working there, obviously, working yeah. on the online games group. But um, uh, it was cool, but, you know, nah. And so pitched five different executives at the company. Uh, all of them t- shot it down until I got to Jay Allard. And Jay Allard, some of you guys know. Mastermind behind the 360, more or less. Right? Mastermind behind the 360, the, absolutely. And he was uh, a gracious executive sponsor. He funded a small team and a small content budget to get the Xbox, the OG Xbox version off the ground as an experiment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the business plan articulated a kind of a two-phase plan. Like, sure. we'll launch this, and if it's successful, then we had much more ambitious plans for the 360 version. So, um, so funded that, launched it. Got the you know the experiment uh, the experiment was a success and then of course tried to get the 360 version um, developed and by then it was you know November December you know December of 2004 Four, right and we were uh, nine months you know, well eleven months from ship of the console but you At, got a lock before you got a lock right? far before that right there's when you're when you're building a console of course you have not only the hardware but you have that system software that goes and is needs to be on a flash flashed, into, yeah, okay. flashed in to be resident in the you know in the in the memory of the console um and and that needs to ship that needs to go to the you know the the uh the manufacturing facility in China needs to be tested and so forth so that software needed to be done in August of 2004 and 2005 okay. to to launch in November and so the team was crunched, and the Book of Xenon, again, didn't have anything XBLA in there. There were plans for achievements and voice chat and a marketplace that, albeit was kind of a smaller marketplace, it was really for more hats and swords and you know, add-on content to retail games, but really didn't have a demo mechanism, didn't have a li- what we call the license key trial model and where you could kind of buy something and it would be tied to your account in the sky and then right. you could roam with it. That w- didn't exist. And then, of course, this downloadable game concept of XBLA wasn't, wasn't there either. And so it was December of 2014, um, and 2004? Two, sorry, 2004. <laughs> sorry, yes, 2004. I'm mixing my dates up here. But December, uh, it was actually December 10th of 2004. I, I'll never forget the, the meeting. It was a Friday. And uh, I, I got uh, to meet with Jay in his office. And uh, Cam Froney, who was the head of kind of the Xbox software team at the time, Xbox Live and the Xbox software team for the Dash, we sat down. I had prepared a slide deck that was uh, Tyler and Heidi. These kind of uh, these kind of scenarios for you know the guy gamer and then the the woman you know girlfriend that that also might be interested in Xbox 360 but wanted a different type of content, maybe a smaller right. game or a more casual game or or a retro game. Walk through the plan with him. Of course, Jay had already funded the OG version of XBLA, so he was familiar with it. But I just had seven people on the team, very small development budget. And I pitched the plan to fully integrate the full vision, which is to fully integrate XBLA into the Dash, uh, make it that destination, which was a key part of the vision mm-hmm. for Xbox Live Arcade, uh, for your content, uh, staff it up, and, and, and integrate it. And So did he say no? Uh, no. So Cam said no. <laughs> so I uh, love Cam, but he was, he was under the gun at the time, uh, and he had nine months, effectively, to ship the Flash. And right. he said, 
listen, I can't do this. Like, my team's booked. We don't even know. Like, it's going to be dicey to even make the date. Uh, we've got we've got achievements and we've got gamer score and we've got all the other, these other things to integrate. Mm-hmm. I have no time to do this. I can't deal with it. No. Um, and Jay took a look at it, and I remember sitting in his sitting sitting in the chair across from him, right next to his Robotron machine he had in his office. And uh, he was a big Eugene Jarvis fan. Um, and uh, he said, "No, this needs to be integrated into the dashboard. Uh, Greg, uh, you will get your funding. Cam." You'll work with Greg and his team. We will find a way to get this done. Uh, it needs to be in the dash. This is a key part of what we want to do with Xbox 360. It's a key part of the vision for where I want to go with Xbox Live. Uh, Greg, you have your funding, and we will work with you, and we'll figure out a way to get this done. So Jay Allard could see the future in this case. Absolutely. Absolutely. He was the visionary behind Xbox Live. He always was, right? Hero protagonist. Um, his his big, tag. big yeah. That's right. Big, big Snow Crash fan. And he saw the potential of, of Xbox Live Arcade all the way back. He was the guy to actually announce the OG Xbox version uh, of it back in E3 2004, for the for the original one, mm-hmm. uh, he remembers the crowd's reaction when we were talking about you know having small games, indie games, casual games uh, on the console, and he was always a big believer. So he gave me a team, a, a slightly larger team. I had eleven people. I went up from from seven. Gave me another That's content 50% development budget. More people in that case, right? Fifty percent more people. And the interesting thing about it was organizationally how we're structured at Microsoft. You know, we're split into a bunch of different teams. And so there's Microsoft Game Studios or Microsoft Studios now. Right. There was the live team. There was the hardware team. There was the services team. My team was kind of, uh, at the time, was separated from the core sort of live software development team. And so that ended up being a blessing in disguise. Right. You were rogue. You were, you just we were rogue. Oh, operate in the shadows. Totally. No one knows. We were off, we were off to the side. Um, and, you know, God knows we had our share of detractors, which we can get into. But, uh, but one, of the, one of the benefits of that was we were able to stay heads down on not only sort of the Xbox content portfolio for XBLA, um, the, the initial sort of 20 games we had in the launch mm-hmm. window, but also there was a bunch of platform back-end sort of technology that had to happen. And then the dashboard, you know, the, the front-end, what sure. we call the client experience. Yeah, the front-facing the stuff. The front-facing stuff. And um, because we were separated, we were able to help out and pitch in and help the Xbox Live team make their August date. So um, not only did we build the Xbox Live button, if you will, but we built that Games Blade. Remember the Blade model? Everybody everybody remembers the Blade super fondly. That's right. Absolutely. The the Games Blade was was my team, as well as uh, about a third of the marketplace. Um, We ended up blowing up the marketplace to be much larger than it was. Uh, and the demo key license model, that whole model around the demo that you would be able to download, and then there would be a license that was attached to it without having to re-download the whole thing, like that whole thing, and then you could put it on a memory card and roam over to your friend's house, and there would be a a key in the sky, and you'd always have rights to your games. Like, all that stuff was all uh, the Xbox Live Arcade team. So it launches built into the 360. You guys make it. Right. and you've got, I, I, arguably the original killer app was Geometry Wars. Yeah. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. So how easy or difficult was it to sell developers on the idea of Live Arcade? So we've got this new ecosystem. It's, it's all digital. There's a 50 megabyte cap to start with. Yeah. Uh, or might, was it even less at the time? It was a 50 megabyte cap 50 initially. The, originally, yep. okay. Yep. Yeah, so, so how was it selling developers on the idea of this thing? 
Yeah, you know, it was not a hard sell, to be honest with you. We went out there, and um, there were a couple things. Number one, there was just natural interest in this from the retro guys. Again, they, they, were, they were having a tough time sort of getting mindshare in the large right. publisher model, right? And, um, and nobody was probably, most people were most likely pirating the, the oh, retro absolutely. games, right? Nobody's, nobody, there's, or, nobody's making money off of them, That's it, right. right? No, nobody's making money off of them. That was a, that was a fairly easy sell. You know, one thing you got to remember back at the time was up until Xbox Live Arcade, this predates everything. It predates Steam, yep. predates the iTunes store, the, the, you know, the app store on iOS or Android. It predates everything. PlayStation Network, WiiWare, nothing existed. This was the very first one. And so at the time, the console was a very closed model. The console, yes. you had to work through a publisher, what's, what's called a PLA, a publisher license agreement, mm-hmm. in order to get your content published. And unless you're this huge multi-million dollar you know, or multi-billion dollar entity, uh, and you work through their pipeline, you weren't getting your content on a console, period. You right. just couldn't. So there was the moment we sort of had hinted to the community that we were going to open the platform, they were caught a little bit off guard with the XBLA, the OG Xbox version, right? No one knew. Right. That was kind of a secret project. Once we had, in the time, that year span between the OG Xbox version and the 360 implementation, um, the, the community was like, wow. The casual game d- providers were like, wow, we can get our content onto the console? Wow, really? Um, the indie game providers were like, oh my god, you know, we're struggling over here on the, on the PC. And remember, there was no Steam. So right. these guys were trying to rely on w- websites to distribute their games. Uh, they were embracing it almost instantly. Uh, so who were so- these detractors that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of people, surprisingly enough, there were a lot of people, as I mentioned, a lot of executives said thanks but no thanks. There were a lot of people internally that were very skeptical about XBLA or didn't want it to happen for various reasons. The reasons were, you know, one reason I heard was um, no one wants to play that those types of games on a console. Like, casual games, really. Uh, you know, indie games, what are those? Like, no one wants to play those when games. When Uno That's, went on to become, like, a multi-million-selling well, game. Yeah, yeah, not to mention, you know, uh, Castle Crashers and Limbo and Braid and Minecraft and so many other things, right, that came after it. Um, uh, so no one wants to play those games. Right. I heard that a lot. Uh, Xbox has no business being uh, in the con- content distribution space of games. Like, who, who, who is it for us as a platform provider to provide a content distribution pipeline for games? That's right. other people's roles. That's the pu- role of publishers. Um, there were others that felt like um, we had no business picking and choosing games. We should be completely agnostic. So remember, you know, Xbox at the time was a nascent business, right? For sure. Microsoft, and just we were the new kid in, in town. You were trying to right? get your foot in the door. We were trying to get our foot in the door. We were taking a lot of our keys, and, and you've, you've talked to Seamus and others before, right? We were taking our keys and our notes from Sony and Nintendo, and there was this concept of you need to be agnostic as a platform provider, right? And you need to be, you need to treat everyone equally. And so, you know, a key component of the vision behind Xbox Live Arcade, and I can't emphasize this enough, one component was the dedicated destination, which we'll talk about, right? But the other was curation. And this concept of you, you, people are busy. It's almost like the, yeah. you know, the, the radio where, record company model. Is that where model. Live Arcade Wednesdays and some of Arcade came from? A- absolutely it was. And, and, and from the outset, from the original OG Xbox, a key component of the business plan behind Xbox Live Arcade was... We are going to, these are small games, low to no um, development, small development budgets, low to no marketing budgets. Right. And 
it's not up to us to sort of just, you know, people are busy. They have all kinds of stuff going on in, 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 their, in their day, waiting through 15 crappy poker games to find the one good one. People don't have time for that. Let us help you. Let's wade through the crap and get to the games that people actually want to play. Let's put them, you know, in the dashboard and then let's promote them and let's market them and let's help these indies, let's help these casual game providers actually get some mind share out there and relative retail games. It was a mandate every single live arcade game had a had a free trial. Had a free trial to it. That was, was that was that demo. part of the vision as well? Ab- absolutely. Cuz Ab- that I mean I I don't know if you're at liberty to share the conversion rates, but I've got to think that that paid off big time. Oh, it, it absolutely paid off big time. So, so, particularly when you're talking about games that had, as you said, no marketing and and uh, minimal budgets, where people aren't going to know about them or what they are otherwise. Right. That was absolutely a key component of the vision from the get go, from the OG Xbox version. It was every game has a free demo because, again, this is about lowering barriers to entry. This is about you know. Uh, exposing people to cool content that they might want to play with at a low price point, making it accessible. Remember, they haven't read about it. They haven't heard about it. There was, uh, you know, websites or, you know, there, there weren't a lot of reviews for these games at the time. Right. There certainly were no marketing budgets or ads or anything. So what's the best way to infect people with the vision of what your game is all about than to have them play a version of it? So, the, the, you know, the demo model was key to the original vision of the Xbox from the get-go. Um, and so, you know, the dedicated destination, every game has a demo, lower price points, five, ten, fifteen dollars that was part of it. Developers keep the majority of the revenue. Again, we went in with the revenue 70, share model. 70-30 split, right? 70-30 split. We, and, Which and, predated every, the, all those other services you mentioned, right? <laughs> and that's a funny story, right? I remember the meeting where we were talking about the... Uh, PLA, what we call the PLA, the Publisher License Agreement, which is the kind of the, the contract that Microsoft has with, and, and Sony has one, and Nintendo right. has one. This is very yeah. well known. Um, with different publishers. When you want to be a publisher, you know, there's kind of uh, con- contractual terms around revenue share split. Sure. And I remember the meeting explicitly when we had come up with 70-30 as the split. Um, 70 to the developer, 30 to 70 to the developer, 30 to Microsoft. And at the time, we had no idea that that actually was setting a precedent for the entire games industry. <laughs> you know, the iTunes App Store, everyone ended up adopting that, right? Because PSN adopted 70-30, WiiWare adopted 70-30, and then when the Apple guys, um, you know, started up the iTunes App Store, they had keyed off of, remember, all the developers were the same developers, the same indies and casual True. providers, et cetera. They had all said, well, 70-30 is what we get on consoles, and so <laughs> I, Apple said, okay. We had no idea that that little meeting we had in Millennium by the gravel pit was like, the rev share split archetype for you know the next ten years of downloadable software, but you know those are that that's one of the benefits of working at Microsoft, right? It's a magical place. You're the platform provider, and the the decisions you make, you know, especially as a passionate hardcore gamer, you know, you can make these little decisions and in a small way contribute to the industry in a major way. Uh, so that's so, so fun. You uh, you once said in official Xbox magazine uh, where I used to work. Mm-hmm. We did a we did a feature piece on Live Arcade as it had taken off with the early 360 days. Yeah, you said Xbox Live Arcade is not a place for your old ass PS1 <laughs> games. Yeah, so yeah. meaning you know I what how I interpreted that at the time was you were wanting to not just have it be a port house and have it you know have That's a lot right. of original content, but uh, where did that statement come from from you? And are you proud that Live Arcade pretty well? indeed held true to that in your time there. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, once again, I'll say it wasn't just me. Obviously, I had an incredible team of people that I worked with um, for many years who built this service together and then, and then obviously uh, continued it even after I left Microsoft. Um, that was uh, key to the vision behind Xbox Live Arcade was shoring up the wall of what it, the walls of what it was and what it wasn't. You remember, again, those forces, those title forces within Microsoft uh, and even amongst within the development community about what this could be, yeah. you can imagine how people would want to naturally pull it in a bunch of different directions. Once we have a digital distribution pipeline in on a console now, wow, let's shove all kinds of stuff in there. Old retail games right. and schlocky stuff and poor quality stuff. Right. and Muddy you know, it up such that no one muddy would it up. Want, even want to use it anymore. Muddy it up, which comes back to this this concept of curation. It was about us having a specific vision for what this service was and wasn't, which was about indie games, casual games, retro games, small games, games that didn't otherwise have a voice. Right. In some ways, it was kind of the democratization of console gaming. That was the vision behind Xbox Live Arcade. And there were a lot of people internally that really had an issue with that. Right? You know, they really, just to be honest, they didn't understand it at the time. I don't fault them now, I mean, in hindsight, but I can understand we were in the process of building a platform, right, for yeah. the future and a console and our presence in the console space. With the OG Xbox, a lot of these decisions were made that far back. We were only in the console business for a couple of years. And at the time, there was a fear that if we didn't do anything that uh, a, a large publisher wanted us to do, that we'd be pissing them off and they'd right. go away or that we'd blow up our own console. I mean, these were, these were real fears. There was a legitimate fear that Xbox Live Arcade was going to cannibalize retail sales and completely destroy the console industry. That was actually a quote I got from from, from one of the internal folks. The, the, um, the harbinger of death for the industry. The harbinger of death for the entire industry. It was all going to go to hell, and everyone was going to be buying. We were going to ruin ruin price points. Braid and limbo was, will kill will kill everything. Yeah, five and ten dollar price points. It was going to completely destroy the sort of economic model of console retail publishing and destroy the industry. And we were just like, no, of course. Some of us were like, of course that's not going to happen. But it was important to that, and that's why I made quotes like that, even publicly, and I stand behind those quotes to this day. What we were trying to do was we were trying to set people's expectations externally within the industry and internally at Microsoft that this was about certain types of games and this wasn't about other types of games. So how far, you know, you mentioned that Live Arcade was this success that even, you know, you believed in it, your team believed in it, but then it just took off. Yeah. How far, is there a way that you can sort of, in a, in a tangible story, uh, crystallize how far it exceeded those expectations? Like, I don't know if you necessarily can or want to give numbers, but was there a, was there a point where you woke up and went, oh man. Oh, oh shit. Like, this we've like, just, we've, we've oh, yeah. sort of, like, this is, this is a, a, a whole new animal here. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple things that come to mind. Uh, so Xbox... Live Arcade, as I mentioned, wasn't part of the plan. So because it wasn't part of the plan, Microsoft is a large company and has a huge machine. This is a multi-billion dollar investment we were making behind 360. Right. And we had the Book of Xenon, which you've heard of before. This is kind of Bible of like what 360 that's was going J- to be. That's Jay's 33, Robbie and Jay's 33-pager, is the, the, that correct? The th- the, there was a, yeah, exactly. The, the, the three-pager the, the three, and the 33 and the 333, right. right. So this was the 33-pager on what it was and what it wasn't. It wasn't part of that, right? There was no chapter for XBLA in because it was late entry. <laughs> And so because of that, 
the mind share wasn't there internally. We were the little engine that could off to the side, mm-hmm. the small team. And the PR and marketing machine also hadn't picked up on it until very late in the game. They finally did. You know, guys like Aaron Greenberg and Albert Pinello and some of the folks that were, are still, uh, still there uh, were, were early fans of, of XBLA and saw, saw the potential. And so in partnership with me and my team, we were able to finally get a little bit of mind share from a PR standpoint right before the launch of 360 in November of 2005. So there was a press tour... Uh, that we did. Um, there was it was New York and San Francisco same day. So New York was more sort of consumer oriented, and yeah, late um, September as I remember. Late it. September around that time frame, um, and uh, and I was in the New York one, and you know uh, a couple of members of my team were in the the San Francisco one, and we had rolled out. This was the big okay. You get to check out the dash. You get to check out live. Yeah, perfect dark. Perfect and dark. PGR. PGR. And, and, uh, cameo. Yep. Uh, Call of Duty 2, yep. right, which is a launch title Huge. with the volumetric fog. Yep. I remember everyone was, was freaking course, out about. Yeah. And we had spent, obviously, a ton of time, Microsoft Game Studios, a ton of time building out those games. We'd spent a lot of, lot of money. Only tens of millions of dollars. Only tens of millions of dollars, right, on those things. And we had this little kiosk in the corner. There was, like, rows. If you've been to many of these events, right? Rows of these uh, demo stations with all these different, you know, all the different launch titles, et cetera, first and third party. And there was a station I in the corner. Geometry Wars. There was yeah, Geometry Wars <laughs> on it. And I was manning the little station in the corner. And... We that was the first time that the press had ever seen uh, seen this, and a couple days later, you know, we were the embargo was lifted, and you know, people were writing their stories, and I kid you not, over half of the consumer press stories that we got were about Xbox Live Arcade and Geometry Wars. That's all people wanted to talk about, and of course, much to the dismay of some of the people internally, <laughs> of course, probably pissed a few of them off a little bit, but I mean, they wanted to. They were like, oh, my God, these small games, this is what I want. A lot of people are not, you know, they're not all hard, super hardcore, That not sure. just Call of Duty. This was about an, the enormous potential of original content and casual games and other things that people were seeing. And so they immediately went to it, and th- we, we had a hint. There was, there was that. Of course, there was the announcement at E3. That was an early hint. That was an early hint. But then when we launched... We launched with 10 titles day one. Yeah, it was a lot. Outpost, Remember? Coloki X. Uh, yep. Oh, boy. Uh, some of the old it's Midway some titles, Some of the Midway right? games, right? Um, Gauntlet, uh, Joust, Robotron, Smash TV. We had PopCap there with Bejeweled uh, and Zuma. We had, um, oh, God, we had... We had uh, Ninja M- Bees M- game. Mutant Storm. Yeah. There's Mutant Storm from Pom Pom. There was a Marble Blast Ultra from uh, Garage Games. Uh, there was, uh, yeah, exactly. Ninja B was there without post clock EX. Later on, they did cloning Clyde. That's it. That's um, that was, that was in the launch window. So we had 20 for launch window. We made 10 for launch day. Right. Um, I was at zero hour. So my team the and I, the thing in the desert, the thing in the desert and in, in <laughs> Lancaster, the big, big, uh, the big, uh, hangar out there. And we had our big zero hour things. It was a 24 hour shift. There was no sleeping. It was literally a 24 hour party. We had one thing over in the corner mobbed. And we launched the thing, and I can't tell you uh, anything other than it was probably one of the it's probably the most magical period of my my entire so career. So you probably had um, you probably had projections for what you expected. We did download wise in the first day or first week or first month, whatever it was. How how far? What by what order of magnitude were those exceeded? Well, let me put it this way: we had a business plan that it outlined, you know, twelve-month projections for downloads, conversion, and revenue. You know, right. you know sure. from the from the service, like everyone did. We hit those in by week three. <laughs> so um, within three weeks, we had done our entire first year's numbers, and by the following month, 
we remember we were still shipping the other 10 games in our launch portfolio, some of which we had subsidized, right, to kind of get the thing out the door and bootstrap some indies that we thought had really awesome games. We had 80 80 developers um, in the planning stages in our pipeline for developing uh, games, and not one of them wanted funding. Like, we had people that were... They were beg, borrowing, and stealing to, to get onto XBLA. We had large publishers come in that didn't want to even return our phone calls. They were like, wh- where do we go? They went from maybe we'll do an experiment to we're going to set up a division to do XBLA wow. games. Um, we just, this thing went uh, completely wacky practically overnight. Uh, and it was just, it was, like I said, it was a magical time. I mean, the... Uh, uh, just a couple of crazy stories. Like yeah. uh, some of the developers that I got to meet w- with, you know, everyone from uh, Mizuguchi uh, to, of course, Alexei Pajitnov, who that's a whole story in and of itself. Alexei Pajitnov, the creator of Tetris, was actually working in my group for other, you know, other reasons. He'd been at Microsoft Game Studios working on some retail huh. uh, games for Ed Freeze uh, that they had shipped old casual PC games, doing puzzle games. Was working there at the time. One of the uh, one of the things that inspired me was uh, my Game Boy and um, and Tetris. Like sure, Tetris the packing game yeah. was a killer app. And so, in the original business plan uh, from late two thousand three, I had a packing game as a key component of XBLA. So we came came time to do the the three sixty version. I said, you know, I really want to build this, you know, this this packing game that was going to be kind of a killer app and we could ship it just like we did with Ms. Pac-Man sure. as kind of a trial to get people familiar with this concept. Remember, foreign concept. Oh, Download yeah. a game, save your hard drive, launch it without a disc. Weird, right? So we came up with this idea and Alexi was just working in the studios at the time, met with Alexi and, and he came up with the idea for Hexic. And uh, it ended up being... The first crazy story, it was the very first game in the history of Xbox 360 to ever be certified because it was our pack-in game. Yeah, it had to ship on every hard drive. It had to ship on drive. every hard drive, and we shipped it. And it was originally supposed to be like just the first half million consoles, and we ended up keeping it on for like 20 million consoles or something. It was like ridiculous. We just kept Hexic on the hard drive because it was this huge hit. It was a great game. Everybody loved it, and uh, Alexi deserves a ton of credit. I mean, after Tetris, of course, he's it a legend a for Tetris. It was a Hexic 2, even. It, there was a, even a sequel <laughs> we did to it later on. Um, so so that, was, that was a key component of it as well. And, and I got to work with, I mean, literally, Tim Train and Brian Reynolds, um, you know, of, of Big Huge Games fame. Mizuguchi, uh, Sid Meier, t- uh, Tim Schafer. I mean, you name it. They were all coming. Not all of them did games, but but many of them ended up doing games on the service. Like Tim and Brian ended up doing Catan. You remember uh, Settlers oh, yeah, of Catan of for XBLA? That was big, huge games. Yeah. That was the guys that did Rise of Nations uh, that did that game. Mizuguchi, of course, did Luminous Live for us. Which was enormous. Um, Richard Garfield did Schizoid. Well, I got to meet Richard Garfield. He's a, actually a personal friend of mine now. We met through that through those days, uh, and he did Schizoid, and of course he did Magic the Gathering. Um, the many editions of Magic the Gathering. Um, people were just coming out. The, 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 some of the biggest names, the Epic guys. I got to know those guys, and of course Chair and, and Shadow and, uh, Complex. Shadow Complex later well, that, on. That sort of brings me to my next incredible. question: Is you know, you, so you've got you were smart enough to say. Okay, let's. We've got trials for every game, so that yeah. these things that people might not know about but might seem intriguing, they can just try it, and then they might buy it. So you've got that in place. 
You've been smart enough to say, okay, we're gonna, we've got Xbox Live Arcade Wednesdays, where every mm-hmm. Wednesday we're going to curate mm-hmm. some cool stuff for you. Yep. So we knew to expect that. Like, what's going to be the game? What's going to be this Wednesday's game? Yeah. So where does, and then you say you've got like 80 developers jumping on after yeah. the thing takes off. So where does Summer of Arcade come into the picture? Because that's, Summer of Arcade became, I mean, right away, the first one was huge. The first one was arguably the best yeah. one. But, uh, it continued on basically until yeah. the Xbox One came into the picture. Yeah. So wh- where where does Summer of Arcade come in? Where you say, well, let's take, let's really put some PR attention behind yeah. a, a block of these in a time when there are no other games coming out. It just it it was such a it became such a cool event. Yeah. On Xbox, where did tell it, me where it, Summer of Arcade came was. from and how you went about choosing particularly that original set of, of Summer of Arcade. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Arcade games. Well, I'll answer the question more broadly and then more specifically. More broadly, Xbox Live Arcade was, again, because of the way it came up and because it was sort of unexpected, it wasn't part of the plan, and we were a separate team, we got to do a lot of cool stuff that wasn't that was just experiments yeah things that we didn't know if they were going to be successful or not xbox live arcade wednesdays came about because it was an experiment we we were trying to do counter pro there was a number of reasons right we had you know aaron greenberg as you know well amy blair who is a longtime you know marketing uh, uh kind of guru in the industry that's worked at sega and sony she was the head of uh, xbox live marketing at the time she and Aaron and myself and a couple others um, came up with this idea of Arcade Wednesdays as kind of an, uh, an opportunity to, again, curate and draw f- focus and attention to what we consider to be some of the best of the best. We tried to ship an arcade game every week just as a mo- matter of course. Yeah. Because we had this tremendous, we had this crush of uh, interest on the consumer side and this crush of interest on the developer side to, like, get us on the platform. So we had to, like, okay, slow it down. So we, we built this cadence of one game a week. Arcade Wednesdays came about in, okay, well, we ship games on Wednesdays. This is a program that we can put out in the summer of arcades specifically um, to counter-program against the big fall, you know, obviously the big Q4 releases. At the time, it was mostly about Q4. Sure. We've kind of moved a little bit away from that now in more recent years, but at the time, it was all about Q4. Definitely. Summer was dead, and we had these amazing games, especially 
one to two years into the you know ecosystem creation of of Xbox Live Arcade, we started getting the braids and the limbos and the you know the cloning Clydes and the shadow complexes and these games that were not just ports, not just little casual games, but they were not to say those aren't good, but I mean really the truly creative, innovative things from these right. little companies that had no money. This was our opportunity to go and showcase those games. And we launched the first one as an experiment, and the thing just took off. I mean, it absolutely took off. It was the, that promotion, that additional layer of promotion helped to distinguish those titles, helped them to stand out, and the developers couldn't be happier. We were hitting million-unit you know, uh, titles on a regular basis, and it just catapulted the service to the next level. So Summer of Arcade just ended up being this massive boon for us. We had many other experiments, too. I mean, we, we had done, God, I mean, so many experiments. We had Aegis Wing. You guys remember Aegis Wing? Free game. Free game. That was a summer intern program. So the challenge really? was, could we hire students made that? Three, three students for three months interning in the XBLA group at Microsoft, see if they could make a game. And they did. It was Aegis Wing. Not a bad game for three guys in three months. We had, uh, God, we had everything. We had, we had advert games in there with Yaris. We had Burger King. Remember the Burger King Oh, games? there was the S- Sneak King. It's beloved. It's like yeah. a cult classic. Yeah. Now. We had, yeah, Sneak King, exactly. So we did those three games kind of specific. Of course, I don't everyone, know how many Whoppers that game sold, but it, it, it <laughs> seems like it moved some, like people loved that game. Those games were a huge hit, a huge <laughs> hit, and people are tracking them down. They're selling on eBay. I mean, people are trying to track down those games. It was, it was an experiment again we did. Um, there were just so many fun things we did. We, we did poker, Texas Hold'em poker. Remember that was huge. The, the Texas Hold'em poker game, and then we gave it away to try and build a huge community. We yeah. had over a million downloads of it before we started charging for it, so we had this huge, vibrant community around Texas Hold'em, which was huge at the time. So uh, when, you're, when you're lining up that first summer of arcade, how are you picking the titles? Because you're like, okay, well, we got to narrow... I, think, I don't remember if the first one was four or five. I know later ones were five weeks, yep. five games. Five weeks, five games. Uh, how, how are you? So you got to obviously you got to choose. Well, what's what's ready or or gonna be ready in time? Yeah. But then how are you how are you curating from there? It was it was really it was more of an art than a science. It's very similar to kind of you know if you're familiar with kind of what the uh, what the Apple guys do and editorializing the you know the iTunes App Store nowadays. They have a team of of people that look at the games. Uh, we had a portfolio. We you know by the time I'd staffed out my team, uh, early 2007, I had 35 people working and. On XBLA, wow. we'd grown quite a bit. Again, kind of a weird org because we had a lot of game develop, it's like kind of portfolio management and game side of it. We also were doing features in the dash, so we had kind of a back end and a dashboard team and a games team all kind of in one thing, which again was kind of anomalous for Microsoft. But we had a portfolio management group, so there were people that did nothing but think about what games we need, what games, you know, what meeting with developers, figuring out what you know, what games we should have on the platform and curating that portfolio. Um, a key component of, and this is another aspect of sort of the business plan that goes all the way back to the beginning, was d- what I call dimensionalizing the portfolio, making sure that we had in the early stages of ecosystem creation, while you're defining what the experience is for people that aren't familiar with this concept, sure. it's important that you have a little something for everybody. And yeah, so not just all time. side-scrolling platformers, right. for instance. right or not all card games, or not all Bejeweled clones, or whatever. We wanted to make sure we had a little something for everyone. So especially with the first 50 games or so, we were doing a lot of that sort of curation uh, in terms of making sure that we represented all of the different 
genres of the game with high quality content. Once a thing was off the ground and we really felt like, okay, XBLA is really really, you know, gain traction, we then shifted more into a mode of quality, innovation, more, even more of an indie shift, frankly, a little less about the casual and the retro, yeah. which bootstrapped us initially, and a little bit more towards the, you know, the... The, the, the shadow complexes. The shadow complexes, yeah. the braids, the Jonathan Blows, the, you know, working with these talented folks on their vision, in some cases helping them with funding, in some cases not. Um, and then Xbox, uh, the, the, the uh, Summer of Arcade program was about the best of the best. It was about taking those titles that we really felt like were platform-defining experiences. Some of them had to be obvious, right? Like, some of them like were a limbo obvious. or, uh, or some a of them were absolutely complex. obvious. Yeah. And it was absolutely obvious to us, as obvious as Geometry Wars was. I mean, Geometry Wars, we knew we had a strong suspicion out of the 20 that we had initially done that that was our killer app. Uh, and I remember, I actually probably still have it someplace, the email I got from Jay, uh, who was, of course, playing on the console every day, and this is pre- pre-launch of the, of the 360. He sends me a note saying, Geometry Wars is killer, man. I can't <laughs> stop playing it. You're on to something here. What a bizarre uh, think of the of the Because PGR was, uh, that was, yeah. of course, 3, was the launch yeah. game for 360. PGR 3 is one of, uh, in my opinion, one of the three best of the 16 or so 360 launch titles. Mm-hmm. But then Geometry Wars takes off and becomes this monster of its own, and it was yeah. probably made by you know five of them or something, while 50 yeah. more of them worked on PGR. Did it take them? Did it take Bizarre Creations by surprise as well? It did. It took them. It took them by surprise, but in a good way. I mean, those guys. That was a that was a poster child for you know really interesting sort of secondary phenomenon that occurred with XBLA, which was kind of an unexpected outcome, but 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 one that we were happy about. Which is, you had a lot of folks, and you still do, right? A lot of really really talented people in this industry that are working on traditional AAA you know content development that are working for three, four, five years, slaving right. away, 12 hours a day, working on a big game. And at the time, you know, those guys at Bizarre Creation, super talented guys, right? Um, they're slaving away, they're working on PGR3, and they need a break. Like, well, they've been doing car games since Metropolis yeah. Street Racer. They've been doing car games their whole lives. I, exactly. And some, th- these guys, you know, you've, you've, met a, you've met and interviewed a bunch of them. They're, they're super creative people, and their creativity is not constrained to, I'm only creative with racing games. <laughs> it's like, no, they're generally creative. They have cool ideas. Yeah. And so uh, what XBLA ended up being for, for folks, uh, a lot of you know, really talented developers, was a creative outlet that gave them a bit of a break. Low development cost, short development cycle, you know, um, opportunity for them to stretch their creative legs, do something quick, innovative, fun, try some stuff. And not everything worked. But in the case of Geometry Wars, right. they came up with this cool idea for a twin-stick shooter with these cool vector graphics. And the thing was addictive as all hell. And it, we, were just, we were just blown away by this thing. Well, that's was, similar. I mean, Shadow Complex from Chair, you know, those guys had spent... Uh, they'd made this big budget game, Advent yeah. Rising, that I, if I remember, memory serves was supposed to be a trilogy, but then mm-hmm. didn't. Like it was, it was actually a very good game, uh, mm-hmm. sort of technically problematic, but the game was really fun. I remember reviewing it mm-hmm. back in the day, but it didn't commercially do super yeah. well. And then right. they come back, their next game. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't think Undertow was first. I think Shadow Complex was first. I think it was Shadow so, Complex. Yeah, so they come back with Shadow yeah. Complex, and then it's this, this incredible yeah. Metroidvania for a new generation that everybody loves. Yeah, and, and, and you know, behind the scenes, and this is one of, the, one of the perks of being in the position that I was in, was you got to influence the portfolio with your own interests, right? <laughs> and so, you know, the, the initial you know, arcade games we launched with, like, you know, I think I mentioned, you know, Joust and... You know, Robotron was a nod to Jay. It was a thank you to Jay because he was a huge Eugene Jarvis fan. You know, a Joust and Gauntlet were my favorite uh, arcade games growing up, so I naturally picked them for yeah, the Captain's Privilege, right? Captain's <laughs> Privilege. And so, you know, when when the thing took off, it was sky's the limit. What do you want to do? And so, you had all these different uh, influencers, guys like Ken Lobb, you know, and you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, some some of the other folks, in, you know, internally that were all kind of like, wow, it would be really cool if we could do this. And so you had, oh my god, if we could have Marathon on the console, uh, that would be freaking amazing. Check, check. Uh, what if we could get Doom, the original Doom, old school, but playable over Xbox Live? Boom. Uh, a bunch of us were Magic the Gathering fans. Let's go call up, you know, uh, the, the Wizards of the guy, the, the Coast guys and Stainless, yeah. and we do this thing, and <laughs> boom, first ever, you know, uh, Magic the Gathering multiplayer game on a console. Boom, done. So a bunch of us were huge fans of Metroidvania, you know, and we love that genre. And so there was a huge continuous, like, uh, we need Castlevania on here. At check. We got Castlevania on the... So, and we were like, but we need, like, man, what if we could do an original you know, kind of Metroidvania game on the console. And Chair comes along, and of course, with this creative vision behind Shadow Conflicts, and it was just, it was just a natural. But it was this magical time, right? I can't even, I can't well, it even was describe for players, to you. too. I mean, it was yeah. just like every summer of arcade, every week there was something new and interesting. It's, it's, it's a once-in-a-hundred-career sort of I, opportunity. I ask developers about this a lot. I'm, I'm going to ask you now, too, because I have noticed in my particularly in my professional time in the industry, which I've been doing this for 13 years since the beginning of the original Xbox, I've, I feel like the sort of middle class, the middle tier of games are, had, have kind of died. That you know, Things that, that came out yeah. for the original Xbox, things like uh, PsyOps from Midway right. or, right. or uh, Breakdown is one of my all-time favorite mm-hmm. cult classics that nobody played is this weird first-person melee game where yeah. famously in the beginning you like eat this burger and then throw up in first person with this right. crazy sci-fi game. Like, right. That stuff doesn't get made anymore because I feel like the industry now over the last five years or so uh, is, is like, it's, it's a lot like the movie industry actually where it's yeah. these huge mega-budget productions or the indie guys, yeah. it's almost like Live Arcade started to rebuild that middle ground. Is that, would you agree with that? I, absolutely, I would. And, and, and that's, you know, um, that's one of the things, a little bit of a bummer. I, I think it's drifted a little bit o- over the years, but I mean, I think it, it absolutely set out to do that, and it absolutely was on a trajectory to doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, now we've still got, of course, we've got a, a, a thriving indie you know, industry trying amazingly awesome things. I mean, I'm just playing Gone Home and Oxen Free, and yeah. you know, and The Witness myself right now, uh, and and I'm just astounded by what the industry has done on the indie front in terms of super creative stuff. I think there is that middle ground. You're absolutely right, and you've nailed it on the head. Um, you, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of that's not uh, that's a really tough market for retail and the publishers yeah. right now. It's AAA. It's it's traditional movie movie model now, right? It's like Art house film, or it's Jurassic World. Tentpole, it's, yeah. it's it's tentpole sort of franchises. That middle ground is really tough. It exists, you know, that Bridge of Spies or whatever. It's 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 that kind of middle that middle fall release in the Hollywood model. But it's tougher and tougher, and that's why I think XBLA can and should be that. 
um, in a lot of ways. Did did, uh, did you your team have anything to do with one versus one hundred? Which is, if you listen to my Xbox podcast every week, you know, huge fan of my my proudest achievements are my twelve out of twelve, all yeah. two hundred points in one versus one hundred because you've, it's literally impossible to get. Did you guys have anything to do with that? We had something to do with it. There were there were other people involved in that project as well. I, what what happened at, at, at again? I go back to that common theme of uh, the little engine that could. You know, we had staffed up the team. We were pumping out all these great games. A couple years into you know the 360 lifecycle, um, and you know my team was incredibly creative, sort of innovative team. They were builders, not shepherds, right? And so a lot of them wanted to move on and do the next thing. And so we had a lot of ideas we tossed around internally about sort of programming inside of Xbox Live and live events and things that were kind of offshoots, leveraging Xbox Live Arcade for distribution and then being more sort of episodic or or other things. And so uh, One Versus 100 was born out of that. So a number of members of my team went over... Uh, and 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 worked with some others that weren't on the on the team to actually make one versus one hundred happen, and and we had some bigger plans for that as well. I'm really sorry that it's no longer on the services. I love that. Please game. tell me you can tell me what these bigger plans were that never I, saw the light. I love of the day. game. I, you know, I I, I I I'm not really sure. Uh, kind of what's still kind of under wraps within within Fair Microsoft. Enough. I don't want to I don't want to violate anything. But um, I asked. But I would. <laughs> but 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 I'll tell you that that there were a lot of really great ideas internally. And and you know what, Phil Phil was there. Phil's been there every step of the way. Uh, has always been a supporter of Live Arcade. Love Phil. Um, he. Um, He's he's aware of of some of the things that we were working on, and you know you never know with Phil. Maybe he'll he'll pull, pull some of those next ideas out. I get. Yeah. So uh, give me give me pick your favorite child. Which what was your all time favorite live arcade game? Um, man, that is that is like picking a favorite child. Uh, um, I would say uh, it would have to be Limbo. Might I as think well. I think Limbo is probably my favorite game. It Why? was. It was the absolute embodiment of what I and others had envisioned when we had birth Xbox Live Arcade. It was indie game, totally creative, um, harkened back to kind of mechanics that were known in the industry at the time, but a completely fresh take, super creative, small couldn't be done at retail. Couldn't be done at retail. That game would never exist in a million years at retail. Three, four hours long. Amazing experience. Production quality was awesome. Totally resonated on every level. And I'm just so proud of developers like like that that that, that were able to that were able to come up with such innovative and creative content and really help Xbox Live Arcade realize the potential of what it could be. Well, and Play Dead's got... We're still waiting to see more of Inside. If you've yeah. you got any connections, any inside connections... <laughs> inside connections. Were, please, let, <laughs> uh, we, we need to see that game as soon as possible. I just, yeah. uh, was, there, was there a game that you were trying to get for Live Arcade that, that got away? Do you have any like sort of ones that got away from you that, that didn't end up getting on Live Arcade for whatever reason? Um, that's a great question. There, there were a lot of games... That we wanted to do around uh, board gaming. So again, this is a personal bias. I'm a big strategy board gamer. It's why does that explain to, to so, ride and uh, Carcassonne, Carcassonne, yeah. Catan? We 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 had a we had a vision for actually making that kind of the the platform of choice for board, multiplayer board gaming over Xbox yeah. Live. There were there were a number of franchises we tried to get um, that we couldn't get for whatever rights reason. 
um, that was that was challenging for us. Um, we uh, we we didn't really at the at the time we didn't really lose out to Sony. I mean, now it's different, but at the time, you know, PS3 and PSN was kind of playing catch up. Um, they they had done some amazing you know stuff on the original content side, obviously with Flow and some of the sure, some of the flower, titles they'd done yeah. that they'd Flower that they'd published first party um, that obviously we didn't have access to. Um, but but they were they were kind of a couple years behind in terms of catching up, and they were they were getting games that we already had, and we were leading for a while. Now now I think it's different, right? Now now I think there are a number of games, and I'm just frankly a little bummed that you know the industry we really created. On, on Xbox, you know, that they're not premiering on Xbox. Um, yeah, because you, so. to, to clarify, you left Microsoft in 2007? 2007, yeah. 2007, yep. so yep. You've, been, you've been sort of watching mm-hmm. the, the Xbox and, and the industry, uh, which you're still in, but you've been watching right. fr- from outside Microsoft since 2007. That's right, that's right, yep. Uh, yeah, well, let, let's talk about that. I mean, it's, to me, as a, as a long-time Xbox gamer and somebody who covered Xbox for a long time, I've... I've lamented. I've written editorials about, you know, I I just don't. It's head scratching to me why they Microsoft abandoned Live Arcade entirely. It's games are games, and they're all thrown in yeah. the 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 ten dollar whatever uh, ID title is thrown in with on the same digital marketplace space with Halo Five. Yeah. So how have what have you seen out of uh, out of how the the, the indie spaces on both consoles, both the Xbox One and the PS4, these days. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to be honest with you, it's been a, it's been a little, it's been a little bit of a bummer to me in more recent years, especially since Xbox One, that they, you know, some of the developers have chosen to, you know, um, head PlayStation's way first. I mean, I think some of that stuff's coming back around, uh, which is which is great. You know, they're publishing afterwards, but um, and then of course there are exceptions to that, like Ori and the Blind Forest, which is one of my oh, all time yes. favorite games, probably my top three on Xbox One so far, um, which has Cupheads been phenomenal. Cuphead, in, I'm inside, super excited about inside. Yeah. There are exceptions to that, certainly. But, you know, there are a lot of games that I'm a little bummed, you know, The Witness being one of them, obviously Jonathan Blow and and and, and what he's done, you know, with Braid, what he did with Braid, which was fantastic, and then the follow-up has been phenomenal. Um, not having that premiere on, on Xbox, you know, my heart and soul is still, you know, I'm still an Xbox guy at heart. Um, it, that's a bit of a bummer, you know. Uh, you know, Firewatch. You know, there are other there are other games that I'm I'm a little bummed about. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think it's you know I have to tip my hat to Sony. I mean, I think that Sony has really done a really great job. You know, Adam and the, you know the guys there at, at Sony have really done a good job courting indies and really. Um, you know, part of it's been that focus on gamers, um, and and I think that's really resonated with the indies. But um, I think they've also done a really good job courting and developing that that space. Um, I I think there's on the Xbox side. I think you know my era, which is more the Peter Moore era, right? I worked right. for Peter. Um, was was a, was a, was a slightly different era. I think it's come back around with Phil. I think it's come full circle, and Phil's awesome, and Phil is a gamer, and he gets it, and. I think it's he's turning the ship back around, and some of the things I'm seeing, whether it's back and pad, and seeing my the joy I have. What every every seems like every couple of weeks, I I pop up the dash, and more and more of my XBLA games are lit up. I was just for playing Doom, play. Doom, totally. Doom One backwards compatible like, on my Xbox One the other night. I, absolutely love it, right? And and just just in a more general sense, I think Phil is just on track. He's a gamer. He's a passionate hardcore gamer like I am, and he. 
he gets it and he's he's turning the ship back around. But I think there was a there was a while there where you know I, I think you know the service maybe lost its way a little bit. I think there's there well, it's were, gone. It's still not yeah. there. Uh, and it's yeah. like in the in the in the way it was. There are no live arcade Wednesdays. Yeah. You know, it's, what, I mean, what what would you if you were still there? It's drifted. If you were still there, what what would you be pushing for? I, I think I, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about sort of Xbox Live Arcade having a very clear vision for what it was and what it wasn't. Right, dedicated destination for your collection and for the marketplace and being able to find that content, surface that content. You know, every game has a demo. Um, it's about indie games, small games, casual games. It's about lower price points. It's about these specific things, and it's not about these things. And the vision for Arcade was a very crisp vision when I was there. And I think what's happened is, uh, and I won't just say it's me. There's you know, a lot of people, again, a lot of really smart people that worked on, on X, XBLA, and a lot of people that continued to, to hold the... You know, carry the mantle forward even after I left. You know, the Minecraft phenomenon, and that's a title's incredible success, and many of the other titles that were published after after I left. Um, I, I think it, it it drifted somewhat into some of those areas that were that were a little more vague and a little more ambiguous, right? Drifting away from a dashboard standpoint, away from the dedicated destination, and towards you know, with the NXE. It still had kind of a, an arcade banner, and there was still an area. Yeah. But then with Xbox One, I think there were just a lot of people. Philosophically, there's some people I hear this a lot. Like games are games are games. I just I don't I disagree with that. I, I don't believe that. I, I I hear that a lot from some people, and I, I heard it especially a couple years ago from the Xbox One management team at the time, not Phil, but some of the earlier folks. That you know all games are all games are the same. They just should be dumped in the same area. I, I just philosophically do not agree with that. The concept of curation, the concept of really showcasing and democratizing gaming, showcasing indie games that deserve attention, that are just going to be drowned out by $100 million marketing campaigns and, you know, and big retail console releases yeah. when they're sitting alongside them in an app store that's already too cluttered. We always have had the issue from the inception of Xbox 360 in 2005, there was already an issue from day one of cluttered uh, marketplace. If you well, go back and read the, the articles, went the away ultimately, right? right. They just right. couldn't couldn't handle couldn't all the handle content, it. It right? couldn't accommodate it. NXE kind of got better there, but the App Store faces this on iTunes as well, right? And the and, and the iOS App Store and Android, you know, Google Play faces this. It's this concept of if the pendulum swings. Oh, you know what? Let we'll just we'll just dump millions of titles in there, and we'll let everybody. It's just it's 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 cool. Everybody will just have a great search engine. Everybody will find the great stuff. No, that's not correct. It's really about curation. And what you've seen with Apple, as an example, because they're the big dog right now, yep. right, in terms of uh, digital distribution and digital marketplaces, let's face it, they have an order of magnitude more you know, apps or more than Xbox has or PlayStation has. Um, what you see is you see them moving back towards curation. So you see more of an active uh, editorial team picking and choosing the games that are good that people might want to see and surfacing those in the interface. Xbox needs to do the same thing. And I think we moved away, they moved away from that over the years, uh, gradually in 360, and then with Xbox One, I just think there were, I think there was, again, some philosophical differences about what classified, what's a game, a game, a game. I think there were some philosophical differences or maybe just, maybe just a, a loss of understanding around what the original vision for Xbox Live Arcade was and wasn't and what that brand stood for. Um, and I think it's drifted. But, but again, I'm, I'm encouraged... I'm encouraged by the last year that I think there's, you know, there there are indications that that it, the, you know the ship is turning. So this is why this is why I love that you came in. You uh, 
you actually you came prepared with notes. <laughs> you brought notes with you. You like it, clearly live arcade meant just still. It was you said it was seven years of your life that it still matters to you, and you still just love it. Like it, yeah. uh, how many people that worked on something can say that? I mean, it's. Uh, well, it, it has has yeah. wor- you know you because you've worked at Blizzard, you've worked at Activision, you've worked at PopCap. Right. These are not insignificant companies. Yeah. Uh, is w- would you say that that your time with Live Arcade has been the most rewarding time of your career? Oh, it's it's absolutely was I, without it without a doubt. It was it was a special time, and I love I love the other companies I worked for. I've been fortunate enough to work with some really amazing people. Had some amazing mentors. Throughout my career, and, and and been able to work with great people, you know Rob Pardo at Blizzard, or you know some of the great people at Activision, or you know Jason Kapalka at PopCap, or you know really amazing, amazing people, you know, visionaries, amazing creative people, and done some really cool things. Been fortunate enough to really work on some really great teams. Um, Xbox Live Arcade is the type of thing that occurs once in a hundred lifetimes. It is the right place, the right time, the right idea, the right team executed. It was right in front of everybody's face, but no one saw it. You did it, and it just exploded. And you know, because it was so successful, and because it was so financially meaningful to the company, and because it resonated from a marketing and a press standpoint so much, it opened doors personally, professionally, for me, for the team. It opened doors in terms of the indie community. I, I firmly believe the indie community would not be here in the way it is today without Xbox Live Arcade. And um and and even the app store, you know, even the even the mobile app stores wouldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for this service and the great people that worked on this. And so it's just how often do you have? I, I didn't tell you the story about Bill Gates. I mean, like oh, Bill, Bill Gates G, story. I've got time for that. Yeah, I mean, Bill, always, Bill, always, these are always good. Bill, G, Bill G himself. So Bill, he was known as known as Bill G internally. Sorry, that's a little Microsoftism <laughs> there. But um, Bill was. These were kind of the waning years of Bill's time at Microsoft. He left yeah. in, in two thousand eight. He was chief software architect at the time. But you know, um, he's he's not a guy. You know, it's pretty well known, right? He's not a real gamer um, per se. He's not a hardcore gamer. He greenlit the the OG Xbox, you know, back you know many years ago, as Robbie writes about in his book, because mm-hmm. of you know Sony and owning the living room. Right. And we've t- heard all about that. And over the years, he was monitoring Xbox, you know, OG Xbox was supportive of it from from a distance, not super involved in that. Uh, same thing with the 360 wave. Um, Xbox Live Arcade hit with Bill, and so you talk about, I mean, talk about an honor. I mean. To be in the presence, you got of, God on your uh, side uh, at that point. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, right? on, this <laughs> as far is the as guy. Is this is the guy, perhaps one of the most influential people in the history of the world that has at least the modern world. Sure, and, 20th century. And I had the privilege of meeting with him multiple times because he he asked for the meeting with me, little me, off to the side, in the cor- some corner of Microsoft, and some little you know little engine that could team. <laughs> Uh, you know, he was he asked Robbie and Robbie asked me to 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 to, you know, to meet with Bill uh, because of Xbox Live Arcade. So he had several took several meetings with me over the course of a couple years. Um, he was personally interested in Xbox Live Arcade for a number of reasons. Number one, it was broadening the console. It was bringing in, you know, uh, different sorts of games. But number two, he personally was a casual gamer. He yeah. loved Zuma. He lo- in particular, and so he wanted to actually give feedback 
on the experience. Hmm. His kids were little at the time, and so he said, this is actually something the first time I can play with my kids at home on the weekend. We can actually play games together. Did he tell you specifically what about that game he loved? Oh, he loves it. He had, and, and Bill is probably the single most brilliant person I've ever met in my entire life. Like, he's... He is at a different, le- like a Stephen Hawking level of right. intelligence, and and he, <laughs> you think a guy like Bill Gates that's running a, you know, at the time was the world's most valuable company that has three, four hundred product units across Windows, Office, ten billion dollar SKUs, crazy technology complexity going on. You think that he wouldn't know very much about the little game stuff in the corner, let alone Xbox, let alone Xbox Live Arcade. Right. This guy comes in the very first time I sit down with him, and he's rattling off titles, uh, feedback on the dashboard, uh, ideas for feature innovation, things we hadn't rolled out yet, friends, leaderboards, other things, (laughs) and was giving me feedback for PopCap, which at the time was a partner, on Zuma, on Zuma's mechanics. He is actually the guy that came up with the colorblind mode, because he's colorblind, the colorblind mode that actually we ended up implementing wow. in all of the all the PopCap games, most of the XBLA games uh, that were that were color dependent. And then when I went to PopCap some years later, ended up implementing that that feature into all of our games there as well, um, <laughs> based on that. And and Robbie even invited me. I mean, you talk, again, you talk about a once in a hundred lifetimes opportunity. I mean, he invited me to this. Offsite, so once a year, like all the big Microsoft, the senior execs like Jeff Rakes and Eric Rutter and these guys that are running titans of industry in and of themselves, all get together with Bill and Steve, you know, at the time, once a year to this big executive retreat. And Robbie invited little me to fly, like on this little private plane off to some, I can't remember where it was, to this offsite to present Xbox Live Arcade to the management <laughs> of Microsoft Corporation. And I was just like, I just it's it's the type of thing again it's the type of thing I'm just blessed. I just I can't say enough about it um and and the team that I worked with some of those talented people that I've ever that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So we all fondly remember Live Arcade and we're we're saying we can bring it back, right? We can. We can bring it back. We Wednesdays, can. trial versions, summer of arcade. Yeah, I mean, curate I- it. it. That's it's right. It's right there, right? It, it's, it's right there. I mean, first of all, bring back the brand. I mean, the brand I don't. I, I was racking my brain in preparation for this. Is to, I think that is probably the most financially and commercially successful brand, at least in the last ten years of consoles that has been decommissioned. Like I don't. That is a multi-hundred million dollar brand with tons of equity amongst fifty million gamers. I don't understand why it's not there. I just don't get it. So, bring back the brand, like you said, dedicated destination in the dash. Easily fixable, right? They got tabs. Create an area. Create an area in the marketplace. The new Xbox One experience, which is great. Um, create an area there for you know discoverability. Create an area of my games and apps. A filter or an area where you can view your digital games collection. Um, curation. Xbox Live Arcade. You know Summer of Arcade and Xbox Live Arcade Wednesdays. Bring that back. Every game has as a demo. Again, they've started to do it. A little bit. Uh, here a, l- and there. a little bit here and there. Like let's let's bring that back. I mean, these are all, I mean, this is constructive feedback. I mean, this is, you know, for the guys, they're doing such a phenomenal job on Xbox One. And again, I have nothing but respect for Phil and the team. Uh, they could make some very easy decisions and bring back a brand that gives them a point of real differentiation versus the, their competitors in the console space by just doing some really easy things um, and bring back that audience that everybody loves. And then with Back and Pat, 
you didn't lose your library. I mean, just focus on, like they have been, bringing back and lighting up those games in the dashboard. Of course, there's 725 XBLA games now, so maybe not all of them, but at least the biggest ones. Curate those. Curate, curate, curate those. Right? Prioritize those. <laughs> bring them back. And, and boy, God, you'd have just a huge... You know, let, let's face it. It's a it, it's a it's a trench war right now with the services, right? PlayStation Network's come a long way. It's got a phenomenal experience on PlayStation Four. Nothing but respect for those guys. I spent a lot of time on my PS Four as well. X, the new Xbox One experience has come a long way over the over the shipping Metro, yeah. uh, uh, experience, the Metro experience, and. They're looking for points of dif- distinction, for differentiation right now. You know, there's games with gold and, and, the, and the, you know, the PlayStation equivalent. They're looking for these different points of distinction. Xbox Live Arcade is a huge, huge, you know, bullet in the chamber, whatever analogy you want to use. It's a huge point of distinction. Uh, and it can help to balance out the advantage, I think, that, that, that Sony has right now uh, on, the, on the indie side, certainly. Clearly, so if Microsoft picks up the phone and calls you and tells you, please come back and, and do this again, <laughs> <laughs> think about it. Uh, but there it is. I Thank mean, you. that's. I appreciate that. Greg Canessa, the creator of Xbox Live Arcade, saying, Microsoft, bring it back. I, I completely agree with you 100%, <laughs> by the way. I just can't think. I just, I love your passion and enthusiasm for this thing that you don't even work on anymore. Thank you. I appreciate I, that so much. Thanks for coming in and tell us, telling us all about me. Live Arcade. It was great. Uh, you also brought a bunch of live arcade memorabilia. We're going to photograph it, put an article on IGN. You have th- physical patents yeah. and tr- original trophies and original promotional materials. So that's going to be a separate thing on IGN. Please look for that, mm-hmm. as well as other episodes of IGN Unfiltered. Greg Canessa, creator of Xbox Live Arcade, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. and It's, it's a, been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to everybody. Hi, I'm S.E., one of the hosts of Bitches on Comics, the most welcoming place for LGBTQ plus folks and women to chat comics, fiction, and pop culture. Bitches are both wanted and encouraged on our podcast. We speak with amazing guests about the media they've created, critiqued, and loved. And you don't have to just take our word for the great time we're having over here. We've been named a Best Comic Book Podcast by several publications, including Book Riot, The Mary Sue, and Comic Book Herald. So tune in and listen to us talk with your faves like Carmen Maria Machado, Amy Chu, Mari Naomi, Anthony Oliveira, and many, many others. Our whole goal is to include more folks in the comic book and pop culture world and to help new readers find comics and speculative books they'll love, with no shade for being new. You can find Bitches on Comics wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more at bitchesoncomics.com.